John chapter 17. We come now to one of the mountain peaks of Revelation in the Gospel of John. Traditionally, Christians have referred to Jesus' prayer in the upper room the night before his crucifixion as his high priestly prayer. Priest, of course, is one of those thick salvation historical cords tying the whole storyline of Scripture together, along with themes such as temple, sacrifice, covenant, exile, and exodus. Uh, and if we've been reading our Bibles for a while, then we know that the New Testament book of Hebrews uniquely presents Jesus as the church's true, ultimate high priest. But Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi, which is what Moses stipulated. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, No priest ever came from that tribe, only kings. Rather, Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that's because it was never God's intention that the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron, last forever. That old covenant office had an expiry date, like milk. And in God's mind, it pointed ahead to Jesus, our Melchizedekian eternal high priest. Now, I realize for the uninitiated, this all might sound rather obscure. uh, But a big part of the book of Hebrews is devoted to this. Because Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron could ever hope to be. Jesus had no need to sacrifice for his own sins or to enter some man-made sanctuary repeatedly year after year, like Aaron offering the blood of a goat. Instead, Jesus entered the heavenly, most holy place once for all and by means of his own blood. And having completed his work of purification, he sat down exalted at the right hand of God as the great high priest over God's house. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the true, perfect high priest because he can represent both parties to God. God and human beings. Jesus is the perfect high priest because he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's being tempted in all ways as we have, yet without sin. Jesus is the perfect high priest because he's eternal. He always lives to make intercession for us. He's not going to be replaced like the Levitical high priests in the Old Testament were replaced when they died over and over and over again. Jesus is the perfect high priest because his sacrifice, his own flesh and blood, truly washes away sin and appeases God's wrath. Which is why King David, prophesying by the Spirit 1,000 years before Jesus' birth, could say in Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. In the order of Melchizedek. However, to call John 17 Jesus' high priestly prayer, that's not as theologically precise as we want to be. Uh, The themes in John 17 are so broad They're too broad to be restricted just to the priestly category. Ideally, we might refer to this prayer simply as the Lord's Prayer. But that's that's trademarked. It's taken. So 
I'm going to call this Jesus' upper room prayer. And this prayer is remarkable. Here we have, brothers and sisters, an entire chapter, 26 verses of Jesus praying to his heavenly Father. That's unique. Of course, Jesus prayed a great deal during his earthly ministry. Our our Lord's habit of praying is mentioned frequently by the gospel writers, Luke, more than the others by a long shot. But uh, only rarely are we given a glimpse into the content of Jesus' prayers. And, And when we are, those prayers are usually short and pithy. So, for instance, Matthew 11.25. This is pretty typical. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. That's two verses. Or John 11.41, as he was outside the tomb of Lazarus. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Again, that's a two-verse prayer. Of course, sometimes Jesus prayed for hours, all night long even, but ordinarily, when Jesus prayed at length, he prayed alone, which makes John 17 then such a remarkable exception. Not only does Jesus pray at length, but in the presence of witnesses. And the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, he brings this prayer back to the Apostle John's remembrance, word for word, just as Jesus promised he would in chapters 14, 26. Now, in verses 1 through 5, that's our sermon text today, we could say, Jesus prays for himself. Yes, and and that's certainly a popular way of dividing up the chapter. Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for his disciples. Jesus prays for all believers. However, Jesus doesn't pray for himself the same way that we pray for ourselves, even at the best of times, even when we're being our our most biblical. You see, this five-verse prayer should not, not be taken as a paradigm for our own. Jesus is the incarnate, eternal Son of God. And he is praying to God the Father. This is an intra-triune prayer, and its content is unique to Jesus' person and his ministry. For us to pray, the hour has come. Glorify me, that I may glorify you. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That would be utterly blasphemous. We're not God, right? And that, that creator-creature distinction always needs to be clear in our minds. So perhaps the closest we can get to patterning our, our prayers for ourselves after the one that Jesus offers for himself in John 17 is to cry to God with all sincerity and no reservation that his will would be fully accomplished in our lives. Because that's basically what Jesus is praying for here. Father, not my will, but your will be done. The Christian lookout, praying for God's will to be fully accomplished in your life, that can be 
costly. In the extreme case, it may lead to a martyr's crown. Jesus prays, your will be done, and he goes to the cross. Or, that prayer may press you toward difficult service, pushing you into areas that you'd rather not go. Or, to quiet acceptance of personal pain and suffering. Father, not my will, your will be done. But God's way always leads to the best way that any person can possibly, possibly take. God's way is the only way that enjoys his approval and his blessing. Look at your big picture in your bulletin outline. And this is the big picture for the whole chapter, not just the five verses we're considering today. And I've taken this big picture quote from D.A. Carson's book, The Farewell Discourse and Final Prayer of Jesus, to which I owe a plagiarizing debt. In some respects, Jesus' prayer is a summary of the entire fourth gospel to this point. Its principal themes include Jesus' obedience to his Father, the glorification of his Father through his death and exaltation, the revelation of God in Christ Jesus, the choosing of the disciples out of the world, their mission to the world, their unity modeled on the unity of the Father and the Son, and their final destiny in the presence of the Father and the Son. Far from being gloomy and morose, the prayer adopts a long-range view which expects ultimate victory even while presupposing conflict. And our short passage today has one main burden, and that burden is Jesus' glory. The glory of Jesus. And that first point consists of two verses which sort of act like bookends. You can see this in your outline. 1B, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And then verse 5, the other bookend. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And everything between those bookends, verses 2, 3, 4, serves then as the rationale for this petition. All right, let's dive in. But, folks, gird your loins. All right, we're swimming in theologically deep waters almost immediately, as you've probably already figured out. Point one, the burden of Jesus' prayer is his glorification. Verse 1, after Jesus said this, and the This then refers to the entire farewell discourse. Everything we've read in chapters 14, 15, and 16 up to this point. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. And this prayer is the capstone to all the instruction that's preceded it. Verse 1b, Father, the hour has come. The time has arrived. The hour has come. And and all through John's gospel, Jesus has been speaking of this coming hour again and again. It's a major theme. What is this hour? It's the hour of Jesus' death on the cross. His burial in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. His three-day silence. His triumphant resurrection. And his ascension to the Father in dramatic exoneration. The time has come. The hour has arrived at last, and so our Lord prays, glorify your Son. That your Son may glorify you. 
Now, it's, it's been a while since we looked at this, but back in chapter 12, that's where we were in July, Jesus, anticipating the cross, says this. This is 12.23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In that passage, the glorification of the Son is associated with Jesus' death, isn't it? This manifestation of the glory of God, the triune God, of whom so much has been said in John 14, 15, 16, reaches its apex. The manifestation of that glory of God reaches its apex, not in a, not in a, in a blinding flash of resplendent light, like a supernova of divine glory, but in the agony and triumph of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what's coming. It, the most spectacular display of God's glory this world has ever known is in a bloody instrument of torture. But in verse 5 of chapter 17, our closing bookend today, Jesus' glorification is associated with returning to the glory of his Father's presence. Look at verse 5. Where does he pray? Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Which is yet another unambiguous reference to Jesus' preexistence. John's gospel is full of verses like this. Uh, Think of chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, right? The absolute beginning. The beginning of all things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or John eight fifty eight. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And now here in seventeen five, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Which means Jesus is using this word glory in two very different sorts of contexts, isn't he? When Jesus prays for glory, it's a glory connected with the cross and the glory connected with his exaltation. Both aspects contribute to Jesus' glory. Listen carefully. This is a bit tricky, uh, but it's essential we understand this. What does Jesus famously say on the cross just moments before death? It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And in the Greek text, that cry is just one word, tetelestai. But as an English translation, it is finished actually captures only part of the meaning, the part that focuses on completion. And yes, certainly, Jesus' work was done. But in religious contexts, that word bears the overtone of fulfilling or accomplishing one's religious obligations. Which is why, in light of the impending cross, Jesus prays in verse 4 of chapter 17... I have brought you glory on earth by finishing, same word, accomplishing the work you gave me to do. Or chapter 13, verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them, telos, not only to the end, but to the full extent mandated by his mission. 
and the way Jesus displays his unflagging love for his own who are in the world is in the cross, the cross that's immediately ahead. Do you see how all this hangs together? Uh, Watch this, right? The glory of the cross is of a piece with the pre-existent glory of Jesus, of the Son, which is itself of a piece with the glory he shares with his Father in triumphant declaration that his mission has been accomplished. It's all those things. And notice too, though Jesus prays that the Father would glorify him, he prays this prayer in order that by his own glorification, he may in turn then glorify the Father. Right? Which means from Jesus' perspective, even the glorification of the Son isn't an end in itself. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Carson writes this, It will bring no glory to the Father if Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is not acceptable, or if the Son is not restored to his rightful place in the presence of the Father's unshielded glory. That would mean the divine mission has failed, the purposes of grace forever defeated. For Jesus to pray in this way is therefore in essence for him to pray, Your will, Father, be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, if this divine mission is to succeed, if Jesus is glorified both in the cross itself and in the exaltation, which testifies that Jesus' obedient sacrifice has been accepted, then and only then will glory accrue to the Father whose will is thus accomplished. Those things have to happen for that to happen. I realize I'm blasting us with a theological fire hose here. There's so much happening in just these few verses. It's sort of the culmination of the whole book and just a, just a few phrases that Jesus says. It all culminates here. So let's just, let's just step back and, and paraphrase Jesus' prayer. All right? Father, glorify your son. Glorify me both in the wretched cross of Calvary just a, just a few short hours from now and... Glorify me in my vindicating exaltation to come when I'm restored to my rightful place in the presence of your unshielded glory, Father. Glorify your Son, Father, that your Son may glorify you. For by this means, all your goodness will be displayed and your will accomplished. It won't bring you glory, Father, if my sacrifice on the cross isn't acceptable in your sight. Or if I'm not glorified in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That would mean the divine mission has failed. And your sovereign will has been thwarted. So I pray, Father, sovereignly work. So that I might truly say on the cross, at the moment of my death, it is accomplished. Now, here's a practical side note, beloved. Notice that though God's sovereignly appointed hour has now arrived, the hour has come, that hour determined from eternity past, Jesus doesn't just lapse into resigned fatalism. Jesus doesn't say, well, the hour has come. That hour appointed from eternity past, I guess I'll just passively sit here as I'm carried along by the irresistible current of my Father's sovereign will all the way to Calvary. No. 
even though God's sovereignly appointed hour has arrived. That time when all of the Father's salvation purposes are accomplished in the death and resurrection of his Son for sin, as foretold by the prophets. This isn't a time for just resigned fatalism, but rather for prayer. Do you see? Precisely because the hour has come for the Son to be glorified. Jesus prays that the glorification might take place. Brothers and sisters, as so often in Scripture, emphasis on God's sovereignty functions as an incentive to prayer, not a disincentive. How's that working out in your life? Let's unpack this a bit. This is worth examining. I want you to turn with me for a moment to Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. This is on page 892, if you're using our church Bibles. Verse 1 of chapter of Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So, Daniel understood from the scriptures, specifically the prophet Jeremiah, that the 70 years, they're almost up. Just around the corner. The close of the Babylonian exile is about to take place. All right. Let's say you were Daniel. What would you do? How would you respond to this situation? You have a guarantee from God, the God who always keeps his promises. He's told you, I'm going to do such and such. You can depend upon it. I told my prophet Jeremiah, so you know my sovereign will on this matter, and the, the time is almost up. What does Daniel do? Does he take an extended holiday and just wait for the promise to come true? Look at verse 2 again. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years Verse 3, so I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Daniel prays for the fulfillment of God's promise. Daniel prays for what he knows to be God's will. In other words, precisely because Daniel is aware of the promise of this personal, sovereign God, he feels it his obligation to pray in accord with what he's learned in the scriptures regarding God's will. For Daniel, the promises of God are incentives to intercessory prayer. Beloved, that peculiar, complex, paradoxical dynamic between God's sovereignty and human responsibility never, ever, ever retreats into just religious fatalism. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. God is sovereign. Never. God uses means to accomplish his foreordained ends, and prayer is such a means. Daniel knows this. So, do you want your prayer life to be more biblical, Christian? 
Do you want to know what to pray for? Pray the promises of Scripture. That's what I was doing in my pastoral prayer this morning. God loves to hear his own words prayed back to him. Our Heavenly Father delights to hear us remind him of his promises to us. And it does our own hearts good to rehearse his promises to ourselves. Remind God in prayer of what he said in the Bible and then call him to be faithful to his word. That's not high-handed presumption. That's the very backbone of faith-filled prayer. Christian, are you filled with fear? Do you have dread for the present, fear and anxiety about the future? Do you feel too weak to carry on what God has called you to do? Then on your knees tonight, pray Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. See, remind God in prayer of what he said, and then call him to be faithful to his word. Christian, are, are you mired in sin? Defeat after defeat after defeat. Perhaps you need to pray God's promise in James 4, 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Remind God in prayer of what he has said, and then call him to be faithful to his word. Are you worried about material needs, about what you will eat, what you will wear, shelter? Paul reminds us in Philippians 4.19 that God's own resources, his riches and glory, are more than adequate to meet our needs. Verse 19, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So, remind God in prayer of what he's promised in the scriptures and then call him to be faithful to his word. Christian, are you burdened with the guilt of sin? 1 John 1.9 if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you persecuted and afflicted for your faith? Second Thessalonians 1.6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And so we pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Beloved, this, this one biblical insight could radically change our Christian walk. The Lord has promised such and such in his word. Now it's our obligation to pray in accord with his revealed will. That's what Daniel did, and that's what Jesus does in John 17. Father, the hour has come. All of salvation history up to this point, plotted out from eternity past, foretold by the prophets, it's coming to its apex. And so I pray, Father, glorify your Son. Glorify me both in the wretched cross of Calvary, just a few short hours from now, and 
glorify me in my vindicating exaltation to come when I'm restored to my rightful place in the presence of your unshielded glory. I pray these things would happen. Glorify your son, Father, that your son may glorify you. For by this means, all your goodness will be displayed and and your will accomplished. It won't bring you glory, Father, if my sacrifice on the cross isn't acceptable in your sight or if I'm not glorified in your presence with the glory I had from before the world began. That would mean the divine mission has failed, your sovereign will has been thwarted, and the promises of Scripture a lie. So I pray, Father, sovereignly work so that I might truly say on that cross, in the moment of my death, it is accomplished. Jesus prays for all of us. Our second point, the rationale for Jesus' prayer. Let's read through the text once again and get the flow of the passage. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing, by accomplishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. What a glorious text that is. And because of my pride, New City, because of my fear of man, I feel like we'd be better off just reading that passage now and going home, uh, not tampering with this text through any sort of feeble attempt on my part to preach it. Uh, But the Lord has commanded the church to preach his word, and he's promised to bless us through the preaching of his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I dare to press on as inadequate as I feel and as I know myself to be. When Jesus says in verse 2, for you granted him authority over all people, he's referring to a decision in eternity past to grant the Son authority over all people on the basis of his obedient humiliation, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. It's the same sort of thing we read of in Philippians chapter 2. There we read that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. But do you see how the flow of that passage works? Jesus has authority over all people, every name, every knee, every tongue. Nevertheless, he actually receives this particular gift of authority only after his cross work and his exaltation. That's what the therefore is therefore in verse 9 of Philippians 2. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. Hence, 
Jesus declares in Matthew's gospel on the threshold of his, of his ascension in 28.18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Given to me by my Father, this side of, in consequence of, my obedient humiliation, suffering, death, resurrection, and imminent ascension. And the purpose for this gift of authority, this grant from the Father to the Son, is clearly stated in our passage today. Look at verse 2 of John 17. Why did the Father grant Jesus, the Son, authority over all people? For, or, or better, in order that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Jesus prays. Friends, hear me. The whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the whole message is that the gift of eternal life to all those whom the Father has given the Son depends on the cross. It depends on the resurrection. It depends on the exaltation of Jesus. Were there no cross work, then sin could not be forgiven because the Lamb of God would not have removed it. Were there no resurrection, if Jesus did not rise from the grave in a glorious resurrection body first, then who of us could likewise be transformed? He's the first fruits. We're the full harvest. He's the head. We're the body. And were there no vindicating exaltation of Jesus to heavenly glory, then the blessed paraclete could not have been sent to convict the world of its sin, its righteousness, and its judgment, or to generate new life in believers. And the Great Commission would lose not only its meaning, because, I mean, what good news do we have now to proclaim, but its very basis. The basis is lost All authority in heaven and on earth being granted to Jesus is a function of his obedience to the Father unto death. His authority over all people is in consequence of his cross, resurrection, and vindicating exaltation. And the reason why Jesus is granted this sweeping authority over all people is to give eternal life to all those the Father has given to him. So again, let me just paraphrase what Jesus is saying. We'll just take a step back. He's saying, Father, you know that in principle, you have given me a supreme position over all people. A position I'm to receive as a function of my obedience unto death. You know that this this position of authority was assigned me in order that I might give eternal life to all those you have given me. And now, Father, the hour has come. Now is the time. My prayer, therefore, is that you would fulfill your word, Father. Glorify your Son, just as you promised you would. In order that, by bringing glory to you, Father, I might affect the salvation of those you have given to me. And then verse 3 just naturally follows. Now this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God. And then he uses the third person, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
Friend, I don't know if you've ever been asked this before in your life, but do you want, do you desire eternal life? And, and just for the sake of biblical clarity, the alternative to, biblical, uh, to eternal life isn't uh, unconscious oblivion. It's eternal conscious torment, the second death in hell. So, friend, do you want, do you desire eternal life? To have eternal life is to know God. It's to know that he is the only true God. There is no other. And that he is made known by means of Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent into the world. It's not possible to choose just any old God. Only the knowledge of the true God is eternal life. Similarly, it's not possible to choose the way we shall know him. Only the way that he has defined as being acceptable, that is knowing Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Verse 3. It's as we just sang before the sermon. What you think of Christ is the test. To try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest if you don't think rightly of him. And the way in which sinners come to have eternal life is by coming to know God, by coming to know Jesus. That's the point of verse 3. The way in which sinners come to have eternal life is by coming to know God, by coming to know Jesus Christ. To phrase that another way, for the Son to fulfill the purpose of his mission, he must bring people to know God by bringing people to know himself. And so, the church sings, as Jesus appears in your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you, and mercy or wrath are your lot. Jesus must make God's glory visible to the people his father has given him. In one sense, of course, that's what Jesus has been doing all along. That's the purpose of the incarnation. Chapter 118, no man has ever seen God, but God, the only son who is at the father's side, has made him known. But the greatest revelation of glory is still to come. It's mere hours away because it's at the cross Jesus supremely reveals his glory and makes known his Father. And thus the glorification of the Son in this great redemptive event is itself, it is itself the means of affecting the goal of the Son's mission. And what is the goal? The granting of eternal life to all those who have been given to the Son by the Father. It is accomplished. Verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus is asking, he's praying for this, to be returned to the glory that he shared with the Father before creation. Which means, beloved, our Lord's incarnation, the word became flesh, entailed a forfeiture of glory. Again, we see this in Philippians 2. 
There's, there's a lot of parallels between that text and this one. The divine form which the eternal Son possessed before becoming human was nothing other than the glory of God himself, the infinite glory and radiance of his being. Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. Which means the incarnation entailed a forfeiture of the glory the Son shared with the Father from eternity past. And so Jesus prays, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. But this doesn't mean that Jesus is praying for, he's asking for something you call like a de-incarnation in order to be returned to the glory that he once had, that he once enjoyed. When the word became flesh, when God became a human being, fully God, fully man, this new condition wasn't designed to be temporary. It's eternal. When Jesus is glorified, he doesn't leave his human body behind in the grave. No, he, he, rise, he rises with a transformed, glorified body, which returns to the Father, and thus to the glory the Son had with the Father before the world began. And thus it will be forever. God the Son, fully God, fully man, forever. The wounds of his passion, visible for the saints to marvelously worship over forever. It follows then, and with this observation I'm going to close, it follows that Jesus is praying for himself in a very special sense. It's only with careful, careful qualification we want to summarize this five-verse portion of Scripture with the caption, Jesus prays for himself. Some Bibles have that. This is a unique sort of prayer. Its essence is that the Father's pledged will be done in Jesus' life in order that God the Father may be truly known and thus eternal life granted to sinners. This is a unique sort of prayer. Its essence is that the Father's pledged will will be done in Jesus' life in order that God might be truly known and thus eternal life granted to sinners. That's the prayer. And it's for such sinners our Lord next prays, verses 6 through 26. Jesus prays for his disciples and then for all believers. Amen.